Protect your dream home with American Family Insurance. And you can weather any storm. You'll also save up to 25% by bundling home, auto, and life. American Family Insurance. Get a quote. Find an agent at AmFam.com. Products not available in every state. Discounts may not apply to all coverages on an auto or home policy. Discounts do not apply to life insurance policies. Visit AmFam.com to learn how discounts may apply to you. American Family Mutual Insurance Company, S.I. and its operating companies, American Family Life Insurance Company, 6000 American Parkway, Madison, Wisconsin. You're listening to episode 241 of TV's Top 5, the Hollywood Reporter's TV podcast. I'm Leslie Goldberg, the West Coast TV editor, and I'm joined as always by the great Dan Feinberg, the Hollywood Reporter's chief TV critic. How's it going, Dan? It goes. Um, heading towards the end of the year, a bit like everybody else, but uh, happy holidays to all and sundry. Absolutely. Merry Christmas. Happy last day of Hanukkah as we record this. A programming note to start the show, we are going to be off December 22nd for the holiday, returning December 29th with our 2024 preview. This week's pod, however, features a look back at the year that was. But before we get into the best and worst TV of the year, we're going to pay our respects. It's been a a, a brutal couple of months losing some incredible uh, TV legends. So Matthew Perry, Norman Lear, and now Andre Brower. Yep, definitely. That one came out of nowhere. I mean, he was he was 61. He was actively working. He was doing some of the very best work of his career. And all we know is... Well, his cause of death was actually just revealed. Lung cancer. He was a fiercely private man. The initial news reports were that he had a, a brief illness. And now we know it was lung cancer. Uh, I, had not, I had not yet seen that, but I mean, that is very sad. F cancer and that one of the greats who had been recognized as such you know he won an emmy for homicide he won an emmy for for thief uh one of those strange kind of caught in the cracks tv shows that was a regular tv show on fx but then it didn't get renewed and so it became a limited uh, mini series as we as we called them back in the day kids uh but anyway the the sort of the, the point of his winning for that was that andre bauer was spectacular everything and we certainly could have had last week's double guest uh, mike royce back on the podcast because one of his one of his great transitional performances was of course men of a certain age that was for a lot of people the thing that proved that he could do non-scarily intense that he could actually do funny but then of course brooklyn 99 proved that he could be not just funny but absolutely hilarious and this is one of those things where, of course, I wish I could tell everybody, well, here are the five episodes of Homicide you need to go watch, but it is one of those shows that is perpetually slipping through the streaming cracks, music issues, and whatnot. Uh, but as we said last week with Mike Royce, Men of a Certain Age continues to be on Max, and, and Peacock has Brooklyn Nine-Nine, but truly just one of the great, versatile actors, someone who made absolutely everything better with his presence in it, and just uh, very, very sad. And, yeah, you know, he had already done a lot of uh, production on the Shondaland Netflix drama, The Resident. It is a White House murder mystery. He was the male lead opposite Uzo Aduba. The show was scheduled to resume production in January following a shutdown because of the writers and actors strikes. Unclear what's going to happen with that show now. (sighs) I assume they will come up with something. (laughs) Something to do that allows people to get that last Andre Brower performance, but you know, I don't know how you handle something like that, and he is definitely someone who you can't simply replace. So I assume they will find a way to do justice to him, I hope. In the meantime, 9-9. 
Well, there's no easy way to segue from that. So we're just going to get into this week's episode and lead off with headlines. Number one. Up first, it's official. HBO's Curb Your Enthusiasm will conclude with its upcoming 12th season on the cable network in 2024. Elsewhere, ABC's roster of Shonda Rhimes-produced dramas will dwindle to just one after the broadcaster announced that the Grey's Anatomy spinoff Station 19 will end with its upcoming seventh season, also in 2024, with that news coming as ABC is adding Fox's first responder drama, 911, to its schedule in the new year. And not to be forgotten, over at Stars, the Lionsgate-controlled cabler continues continues to clean house and has announced that the upcoming third season of Hightown will be its last. Oh, I assure you, I've I've made a professional ritual of forgetting about Hightown and forgetting that Hightown exists, but it absolutely does. And three seasons in this day and age, good run for a, a cable show. And hell, seven seasons for Station 19 is also vaguely remarkable. There, There's a whole assortment of, of broadcast shows that have somehow gotten to five, seven, nine 15 seasons that I've just completely and totally lost all track of. And definitely Station 19 is one of those. Yeah, there's a lot of long running broadcast shows that are going to be ending in the new year, but uh, we'll probably save that for a segment. Well, in the new year. Excellent. Continuing with headlines, Kevin Hart will star in the crime drama series Fight Night about a heist during the night of Muhammad Ali's comeback fight for Peacock. In other new streaming series orders, James Wan has set the drama Obsession, a relationship thriller that ends in murder, spoiler alert, at Amazon. In casting news, J.B. Smoove, Yvette Nicole Brown, and Jay Farrow will lead the voice cast of the Netflix animated update of the late Norman Lear's Good Times with Renata Shepard of Lizzie McGuire taking over as the new showrunner. In renewal news and happy news from a show that we will discuss at some point later in this podcast in a complimentary way, Blue Eye Samurai has been renewed for a second season at Netflix. If you go back to TV's Top 5, episode 236 from November, married creators Michael Green and Amber Noizumi uh, told us that they have a four-season plan for the animated series. Anyone who has watched the first season has a pretty clear sense of where season two is going, and I am very glad that we will get to see that at Amazon. They've renewed Good Omens for a third and final season. I was definitely surprised when a second season of that was a thing that existed. And news just in, Apple has renewed Platonic for a second season. Not final, but second season. So good news there for the Rose Byrne and uh, Seth Rogen comedy which is very good, by the way. And wrapping up with some cancellation news, AMC has axed Bob Odenkirk vehicle Lucky Hank after a single season, and Freeform has dropped Cruel Summer after two seasons and revealed that the part two of the fifth season of the Foster spinoff Good Trouble will be its last. The cancellations leave Freeform with no scripted originals on its roster following the conclusions of Grownish and Good Trouble in 2024. So Dan, yeah, could possible end of an era at Freeform being in originals. So we'll be very interesting to see what Simran Sithi, who also oversees programming for ABC, does with the cable network in the new year. If they will continue to invest in scripted originals or if it will be a place for a lot of unscripted stuff and maybe some Disney Plus originals getting a second window. It will definitely be a thing to see. Whether it will be a thing that will be interesting, I guess we're going to have to find out. Number two. Up second... Holy shit, pigs must be flying somewhere because Netflix has taken a major step towards transparency. Yeah, you heard me say it. Transparency and streaming viewership. Holy crap. Anyway, the streaming giant has revealed some viewership data for some 18,000 titles. Dan, 
Can we just say that for a second? Viewership by the hour, naturally, for 18,000 titles. 18,000 titles. My head kind of exploded when I saw that the Excel spreadsheet with all of the titles listed there. But before we get into all of this, we should preface this by saying, don't get too excited. So maybe I should retract my holy shit, but either way, it's transparency. So while this is a huge change for the streamer, this data is still somewhat of an algebraic equation as the streamer's data is in total hours spent for the six months ranging from January to June of this year. That covers 99% of the titles on the platform. It is not in the hours viewed metric that the streamer releases every week as part of its weekly top 10 charts. So it's like it, even Netflix can't agree what, what measurement they're looking at, but still this is a big step in the right direction and something we've been asking for, honestly, since our podcast launched five years ago. It's a thing. I find any description of this as transparency to be an insult to what the word transparency means. I think this is absolutely a piece of information. There is no question this is a piece of information. It is a piece of data that we did not have at our disposal previously, and it is a piece of wide-ranging data. And that is the thing I've complained about most reliably is that it was one thing to constantly tell people what the three best shows on Netflix were doing, but there was no way ever to contextualize that because we didn't know what the middle three shows on Netflix were doing and what the three lowest rated shows on Netflix were doing. And this is a step in the direction of knowing that in one metric. And if this is the metric that actually does align to what the performance-based bonuses that the WGA negotiated for uh, were, etc., then obviously that has value. And I think that kind of down the road, as we can actually accumulate these individual snapshots, and Netflix has said that they're going to do this every six months, that this is going to become a thing, and maybe they will. That'll be great. That will eventually, at some point, maybe give us enough data to to draw conclusions. It's still, it's one little corner of the data that Netflix possesses. And there is no way that Netflix, when they chose what little corner of the data they wanted to lift the veil off of, decided that they were going to give us the most important piece of data. There, there just isn't. It is completely out of the overall context of how Netflix operates. It's a piece of information. So I got no problems whatsoever with saying we are more informed now than we were before Netflix put out this data. For sure, completely. I just think it's a long way from transparent. Yeah. So <laughs> I mean, what I would say. the top titles we know are The Night Agent, which came in first with 812 million hours viewed, followed by Jenny and Georgia season two with 665 million hours. Wednesday in fourth, followed by Queen Charlotte and You season four with Outer Banks season three, FUBAR, The Diplomat, Manifest season four, Firefly Lane season two, Beef, Vikings Valhalla Season 2 and XO Kitty ranking in the top 25. Sex Life and Shadow and Bone were the most watched titles that were canceled, both ranking in the top 70. But it's still, you know, to your point, Dan, it's still algebra. It's still not a definitive answer to how many people watched and maybe even finished The Night Agent, right? Like, I know I watched it and finished it. That, does that count as one view? If my wife watched it too with me, is that a view? Is that going to be counted somewhere, somehow? Again, it's algebra. Still algebra. It is. And as you've said rather consistently, that probably the piece of information that was most important has all along been completion rate. And we do not have that. And we, and we don't have any of the, I mean, it's algebraic, but we really and truly don't have any of the data that would ever allow us to do that math. We cannot possibly know based on this, how many people are actually 
watching any of these shows to completion. There, you know, there could be people who watched The Night Agent seven times back to back to back to back to back when it came out, and those people skew the data. There's no way to know what this means. There's no way to know what this means to Netflix when everything is put in a six month context. There's no way of knowing how you know, where those pieces of viewership and when they occurred and where Netflix's cutoff is to the point at which they stop caring. It's just hard for me to look at this and it, there, there's so much data and that's obviously one of the key things that Netflix wanted to do. It's the scene in every David versus Goliath legal drama where the plucky lawyers for the underdogs are like, you're going to give us all of your discovery documents. And the evil lawyers for the corporations are, no, we're not. No, we're not. And the judge says, you're going to give him your documents. At which point the evil corporations say, ha, now we're going to bury you in documents. And suddenly 15 different uh, moving vans show up at the plucky lawyers' houses. And everyone's like, oh God, now we suddenly have all of this information how are we ever gonna do it and that to me kind of is what netflix did here they're like we're gonna give you so much information on this one thing that you're gonna pay no attention to all the other information you don't have once again it is better than nothing it is a step in the right direction yay but it's still hard to know what to do with it all. Yeah. And what's also interesting too, is as I look at this giant Excel spreadsheet, it's also got information here about if these titles were available globally and when they were released, because obviously that makes a huge difference. Titles that were released early in January are obviously going to get, you know, that are high profile and new and get recommended by the algorithm. Like, obviously that's going to have an advantage, right? So like you, you look at some of this stuff and it's like, okay, well, let's take Wednesday, for example, but that came out in November, right? So obviously that was still relatively fresh when in the new year, it spread like word of mouth, et cetera. So it's going to get some more viewership going. But then, you know, you look at it and sometimes that if Netflix released a big show or a movie closer to the June cutoff, it may not have a good performance, even though it was a breakout. But obviously we'll, we'll get the, the rest of this information when Netflix releases this data for the second half of 2023 in the coming weeks. But in the interim, what we do know is that they do hope to release more of these engagement reports, as you said, Dan. And this is a step in the right direction, considering that at least some of this data was expected to be shared with creatives as a result of the new WGA and SAG agreements that tie in residuals to show performance. So either way, as we've say, it's something and something is better than nothing. And the thing that I find frustrating is that as our colleague Rick Porter noted in his story, Netflix is using total hours viewed as a way to measure engagement rather than the view formula, which is total viewing hours divided by running time that it employs to compare titles in its weekly top 10. There are still some tea leaves that you can read here. Our uh, friend of the five, Joe Adalian, had a great at what works and what didn't work over on Vulture. And some of his findings include that 55% of the 100 billion plus viewing hours that were measured were generated by Netflix original programming, whether that's movies or TV shows, non-English language accounted for about 30% of viewing time on Netflix. To me, those are the two really, really interesting things. It just shows how big of a global platform Netflix is, considering you've got so many titles that are either K-dramas or Spanish language telenovelas that's connected across the country and not just, you know, locally, but here too. Definitely the global reach of, of Netflix is probably one of the biggest takeaways from all of the data and definitely not 
in any way the least bit surprising. I, I think that everyone has known that, and we knew that that was where Netflix was putting a lot of its concentration. And so seeing something like The Glory, a K-drama that I definitely have no awareness at all, as high on the list as it is, it's it's just a reminder that there is a whole world out there watching TV, and it's not just the biggest and most obvious titles, you know, sort of the, bu- the buzz in my bubble, whatever, might be more towards your money heists and uh, things of that nature, your elites, um, though that well, might just be buzz for mm-hmm. Exactly. So yeah, uh, I don't know. What else jumped out at you from this? Honestly, those were the biggest things, really, you know, seeing how much foreign stuff rated as high as it did. And I'm using that word in quotes, obviously, when I say rated. And looking at some of the library titles that 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 continue to perform, like The Office, which is on Peacock as an exclusive domestically, but it still does incredibly well globally for Netflix because they retain international rights because Peacock is not yet an international platform or global platform the way that Netflix is. And that's honestly where Netflix has the biggest head start because they were able to build these global platforms while their competitors hadn't even launched domestically yet. So obviously that that's something that is going to make a major, major difference. But yeah, honestly, that that's really it. And, you know, we'll see obviously the suits bump, what happens when, when the, the report from June to December comes out or July to December. Netflix has the information to, to make sure that we know anything that we want to know. And for example, the suits bump is absolutely something that will be interesting to see. You, you look at this time period and suits, the first season was number 73 on the list and 129.1 million viewing hours, whatever that means. It's a lot. On the other hand, it's still, I don't know, like lots of, lots of random library titles still had a lot of viewership in that town, in that time. Something like Designated Survivor, one of your favorites, was at number one, uh, number 100 on the list and it has not undergone a similar renaissance or whatever. There is data on what the moment of virality for the Suits renaissance was that I don't believe that anyone currently knows. And I would love to see that. And there's no way we're ever going to have the information that will tell us because somewhere there is like suddenly a week where Suits spiked. And I would be really curious to to do a deep dive on what the instigating factor really was rather than just kind of anecdotal versions of the story. There's there's a typhoid Mary to the Suits Renaissance, and and I'd love to know it. I loved going through and, and seeing all of the various canceled titles and seeing how many people are, for example, still at this point watching Everything Sucks, and that was down at number 5,904 on the list, which is pretty far down. But you can I watched it much, again this year. Did you watch it between January and June? Yeah. Oh, then you are counted in in the two million viewership of everything sucks but something like gypsy i kind of yeah, like one and done at, yeah yeah one and done but 10.9 million hours it's at uh 1916 on the list but 10.9 million hours divided by how many episodes it still doesn't tell me how many people actually watch that show no it That's tells you nothing it, it tells you nothing. tell me that, Netflix. You know. Netflix, you have the answers. Tell me. Give me completion rate. How many accounts finished a show within the first 28 days or within the first six months? Like, I don't care. Just tell me how many people are watching it. Don't make me do math. There's a reason I'm in journalism, and it's because I was told there would be no math. 
but something like Teenage Bounty Hunters, which is uh, 7.8 million viewership hours, another one and done show. The Society still at 14.2 million hours. That was one that was renewed and then wiped out by the pandemic. Yeah, exactly. That was one of the things I enjoyed most. I also enjoyed going and, and looking at some of the movies that had brief windows of hype, but have now become kind of just background noise for Netflix, something like Mank. Uh, you know, Mank was a huge deal for Netflix, and now it's getting 300,000 viewership hours. It's down so low on the list, it, it's invisible. Remember that brief moment when conservative activists decided that the movie Cuties was going to be the most controversial movie in the history of the universe on Netflix? That's down at number 12,841 with 200,000 viewership hours. It's just all the things we can't know. So you've got Chris Rock's Selective Outrage, the special that was a big deal because of its live viewership. And you look at the data here, it's 36.2 million viewership hours, obviously a huge number, very, very successful. And yet there's no way whatsoever of knowing how many of those were actually live and whether that reflects in any way positively on the experiment that they attempted with it. We just don't know. Squid Game kind of lingering at at 87.2 million viewers down at number 126. It will be interesting to see what the Squid Game bump is because of the reality show, because it's going to be precipitous. It's going to be a, it's going to be a major spike as a result of that cuz now Squid Game the original series is in the the top 10 fairly regularly when I pass by it. So I'm I'm going to be interested to see how a lot of that shakes out and just all of the things where it kind of gives the impression of knowledge and yet I'm not really sure how knowledgeable we truly are. We just have a few more data points. I think that give us a few more of these 6-month data charts at some point somebody smart and that's much more likely to be our colleague Rick or friend of the five Joe Adalian, will be able to actually start putting some of these next to each other and starting to draw bigger conclusions. I don't think we have anywhere near the numbers to do that at this point. Yeah. And what I'm interested in seeing is if this will have any kind of ripple effect on the the rest of the streaming landscape and if we'll get any kind of data similar or not from any of the other streamers from from Max or Disney Plus or Paramount Plus or Apple or Amazon. And at this point, I'm going to guess the answer is going to be not anytime soon because, well, none of those have the kind of global reach and subscriber base that Netflix does. So this obviously is kind of a flex for Netflix to be the first out of the gate to do this, but it also makes sense for them to be the first out of the gate to do this because these numbers are going to be relatively big. Exactly. They, they set what the bar is and now everyone else has to look at what their own data is. And the truth is that in almost all of the cases, it would be significantly less, even the things that we think of as being very successful on other services. So it's because the services itself are not big. It's like comparing a broadcast show ratings to HBO from 20 years ago. You can't compare the two because broadcast is in every house and HBO is only in the houses that pay for it. So it's the same thing, you know, here, except Netflix is a global platform with 200 million plus, I don't, I forget the numbers, global subscribers. And you look at, at the competitors and not, and most of them aren't even on the, on that kind of a global scale. So, and that's again, why you're, you know, it's all, obviously this is all connected. Now I feel like Jeff Loeb here, but that's why you're starting to see all these companies try and retain an international rights when they, when they pick up a show, et cetera. And that's why all these companies are trying to get in uh, different global markets and launch across the globe. And that's why you're seeing Warner Brothers and and discovery merge because you need the scale to appeal and you need the content that makes that kind of global platform appealing to audiences all over the world. So I'm going to stop here because I feel like we've beaten this horse a little bit too much here, but you get the point. Look, again, it's not everything. 
I don't think it's transparency, but it's absolutely information. And if we are in some way smarter on this conversational topic than we were four days ago, then, you know, we're not beating a dead horse. We're trying to make sense of the information that we now have that we did not have before. Am I still going to be writing because Netflix, like other streamers, doesn't release traditional viewership data in almost every story? Yes. Yes, because this is not traditional viewership data. That's that's easy. This is not that. And the thing is, we don't know what that is. So yes, things have changed. Nice try. Things have changed, but they haven't changed entirely. Number three. Up next, as we head into our Christmas break, it's time to shift our attention to an end-of-year tradition, a look back at the best TV of 2023. Joining us to discuss is THR TV critic and friend of the five, Angie Hahn. Hi, Angie. How you doing? Hello. I'm great. How are you? I'm good. I'm good. Thanks for joining us. Thank you for having me. This will be such a pleasure to discuss the best TV of the year with you now, because I feel like we definitely haven't been doing that almost nonstop for the last three weeks so yes this is definitely the first time it's come up between the two tv critics at thr this year ah, i look i look forward to finding out what tv shows you like it will be a total surprise <laughs> and mystery that i definitely do not know all of so let, let's just start with the process i mean there was one year a couple years ago where i i tried very hard to keep track of all the programming that i watched it was challenging to say the least for you guys that's got to be like part of the job how do you go through this and, and make these determinations? Well, I actually keep a Google spreadsheet over the course of the year of everything that I've seen. And as I go through the year, I try to mark which ones I liked so that at the end of the year, I can kind of look back. There have been years, not I guess not in the last few years, but in the past where I have tried to get to the end of the year and then try to remember everything I saw. And it's just it's just an impossibility. It's hard. And it's hard also because at a certain point, sane, rational people had to dispatch with the possibility of reviewing every show. So at one point, it used to be possible to kind of glance at what you'd reviewed over the course of the year. And you'd be like, okay, well, those are the 20 shows that I reviewed positively. So those probably must be the 20 best shows of the year. So, But at this point, it involves going through my list of everything I've reviewed, period. Angie's list of everything she's reviewed, period. Then having to go through all of the things that I watched just for the podcast that neither one of us reviewed, that I watched just for my newsletter that neither one of us reviewed, except for the fact that most of those I don't have like written on a list. It's kind of trying to remember based almost going back week by week, as somebody may have mentioned, there's a lot of TV. Uh, <laughs> and and then ultimately it ends up with a, a list that I'm relatively somewhat satisfied with today, but I'm quite positive I'll want to have a completely different list tomorrow uh, or the next day. If, if I made this list next week, it would be probably a different list. How, how cemented are you feeling in your list, Angie? Is this the list that you will want to treasure forever and ever and ever with no modifications or uh, refining? I have to tell myself it is because otherwise I could spend the rest of my life just like making tiny little incremental adjustments and being like, this should move up a slot. This should move down a slot. Maybe I should push this up from honorable mentions or like push this back down or whatever. But largely I agree with you. It's kind of a snapshot of just whatever my preferences happen to come out to that day 
uh, on the day that I felt like I had to submit my list so I could start writing it because otherwise I'd be tweaking it forever. But yeah, you were talking about like, oh, maybe next week or next month, it would be different. Like to say nothing of like, you know, a year, like I looked while I was while I was working this on this, I looked back at some of my lists from previous years. And some of those I was just like, oh, wow, I I'm surprised by my own picks. They're not necessarily what I would pick now if I were trying to pick the best shows of 2022 or 2021 or like which ones I remember the most or anything like that. But uh, that's just how it goes. It is good. <laughs> there's there's definitely a serenity prayer aspect to it. You know, it's a Grammy of the serenity to accept that the thing that I just filed to John Frosch is, is something I can be satisfied with at least until next week and then I'll move on with my life. But John Frosch, of course, being THR's fearless reviews editor. Who, who has it. never listened to a second of this podcast and therefore will not hear us say what a very fine editor he is and, and yay John Frosch. But uh, yeah, he's not going to listen to this. So well, maybe we'll have to have him on next year, Dan. To hell with him then in that case. No, I, and also there's still stuff that I haven't finished or haven't watched that I know, you know, at least one thing in my second 10 was from a show that I finished watching over the weekend, but it never ends. And the catching up never ends. So so let's get into it. Let's just do your top five each. So how, however you guys want to do this, if you want to start at five and go to one or go the other way, like I defer to you. You guys are the critics. I feel like last year we kind of went down from 10 swapping our 10s, our 9s, etc. And then ultimately people are going to be shocked if they haven't gone on the interwebs to discover that we have a top three that might be very similar. So I think that I, I think this will dovetail regardless of how we go. I think we should start with the top 10 and go down just because that lets us get into the different shows that are on our lists. Because once we get to the top three, and it's maybe the exact same top three. So anyway, um, ooh, Leslie just pulled out a pillow and a nice glass of warm milk. And we'll see if she uh, if she, if she rouses herself from her <laughs> long winter's nap. Okay, I will start my number 10 show. And this is one that I agonized over well not really there's no agony the world is full of genuine agony and this is just a top 10 list and <laughs> and even the agonizing is between shows that i like a lot my number 10 show on my list was the last of us uh hbo's um very human and very humane zombie video game adaptation which i liked extraordinarily at the beginning of the year it was sort of a revelation because as a rule video game adaptations tend to suck and that's just a thing you make peace with. And the great thing about The Last of Us is that it <clears> did Halo. not suck. <coughs> Sorry. Halo, <coughs> Halo. Halo was just there. I, I don't count Halo as sucking. Halo didn't suck. It it just existed. I, I don't know. It, whatever. Also, totally have to acknowledge in, in the case of most video game adaptations that I am not the target audience uh, for most video game adaptations. Anyway, uh, Bella Ramsey and uh, Pedro Pascal, both terrific as our leads and just a wonderful assortment of guest performers, uh, obvious showcase for Murray Bartlett and Nick Offerman in the season's third episode, wonderful couple of episodes featuring Melanie Linsky, Storm Reed had a tremendous flashback episode with Bella Ramsey that was just excellent, just a show that could scare the hell out of you. The the mushroom zombies are definitely freaky, and uh, all of the conversations about how you would prepare mushroom zombies if you're really hungry were a lot of fun, and just a good show, and I liked the idea of starting my list with at least one very popular, very big show, just so so I could go elsewhere. Yes, what a celebration of mushrooms it was. No, I mean, I like that one a lot too. I think it made my 
honorable mentions. Uh, I, one thing I really appreciated about it is I think, you know, we've seen a lot of these post-apocalyptic dystopian shows and they often just veer very, very dark and very, very gritty and just like, yeah, people are terrible and that's, that's the beginning and the end of it and whatever. And there is, you know, there's definitely some of that, like a lot of people in this show do not necessarily behave honorably or kindly at all times. But I think that it, especially in episodes like Long, Long Time, which I think is kind of the, it was kind of the highlight for me. Uh, you also get such a sense of, you know, why life is worth preserving even in the face of something like this. So yeah, I like that. I liked the the performances were very good. I did love the format where it kind of jumps back and forth so that you see them going through the landscape in the present, but you also get these little slices of what their lives were like before this and all that. So yeah. What was your number 10, Angie? My number 10 was Somebody Somewhere, which was, I, I believe, also on my list last year. So hardly a surprise that I, I liked it. I feel like I already said a lot about it last year, but it was just another just balm of a show that, you know, puts so much of its emphasis on on love and joy and empathy and compassion. And it's not like the people in it are perfect, but it it's a show that really just treats them with such affection and gentleness and care. I love that it's this unassuming show where, you know, we watch a lot of things that have like lots of drama and like where everything's like very slick and stylish and everything. And, uh, you know, this is a very confident show, but one of the things that's so beautiful about it is just how how real it feels. Like I love the relaxed vibe. I love that when you watch the show and you're watching these friends talking to each other, it, I mean, I know it's a scripted show, but it almost doesn't feel like it because it just feels so natural and their chemistry feels so relaxed and lived in. And um, I don't know, it just it's such a delight. And especially it was airing after some very dark, dramatic shows earlier in the year. So I felt like it was also just kind of a nice way to counteract some of the darkness that we we're dealing with, like the show that we were just talking about. Like so many of HBO shows, that is always the thing about prestige TV is that prestige TV does tend towards does tend towards the dark. It does tend towards the miserable. It does tend towards people doing mean things to each other. And we'll have several shows on both of our lists coming up that do that. And it's nice to have a show like Somebody Somewhere, which really is at its heart about human kindness and people being decent to each other and the power of friendship and and things like that. It is essentially at its heart a hopeful and optimistic show about what happens when humans interact. And it's nice to have a couple shows like that, even if most days it feels as if that's not necessarily the way that people seem to be interacting on our television sets and in our comment sections and on Elon Musk's white national uh, social media platform, et cetera, et cetera. So yeah, it's, I, I also really have, have a lot of affection for this show for whatever reason I never it never hits me in quite the same way that obviously it hits the people who love it the most, but damn good show. So what is your number nine? My number nine is a show that, I mean, you just went on and on about how this is a beautiful show about like the, the joy of human connection and whatnot. My number nine is a show that is not like that. It is Killing It, season two on Peacock, which is a very biting uh, satire of what it is like to live in a capitalistic hellscape, which, uh, you know, <laughs> given all the stuff that you just rattled off, I'm, I think I could safely say is an experience that we are not only familiar with, but probably think about quite a lot. I, I mean, I really enjoyed season one. I thought it was very funny and did a good job of kind of balancing the darkness of it with kind of the sweeter, funnier aspects of just these this, these two buddies going about their lives trying to make the best of it. But I felt like in season two, they really stepped up how much more savage and biting it could be. I felt like the humor also just got a lot sharper in the way that a lot of 
comedies often do after they've been on a while and kind of have have honed the characters and the the tone a little bit better. It's a show I think I've probably seen it a couple times through already because it's just one of those shows that I feel like I could watch over and over and laugh about. But it's also one of those shows where even while you're laughing, you're also just kind of like, does my stomach hurt because it's a side splitter or because it is punching me in the gut by reminding me how horrible life can be sometimes. So yeah, that one I, I really enjoyed a lot. I thought it was it made me laugh so much and it didn't make me cry, but made me cry on the inside, you know? Killing It was definitely one that I had not watched in its first season, just too much darn TV. But uh, once you and Alan Sepinwall and a few other people strongly recommended the second season, I, I caught up. And uh, that was definitely one of the most enjoyable catch-ups that I had this season. Uh, because, yeah, it is a it is a cutting show. And it is a, a show that really has a, a lot to say and has a lot of anger under the surface. But for the most part, it does it in, in very funny ways. Craig Robinson's a great leading man. Claudia O'Doherty is, is just fantastic. She's been a scene stealer for a number of years in a number of shows and and she's great. And and just at this point the entire roster of supporting characters and supporting actors from Prada La Monica on down. It's it's just a, a really good show and a show that really has a lot on its mind in addition to the comedy, but like you say it is definitely not a show that has a particular affection for where we are in our cultural moment and how we got here. It does have anger about it, and sometimes that can be funny. My number nine show is actually a significantly more optimistic show about uh, human nature and where we are as a country. It is Taste the Nation with Padma Lachmi, which is really and truly a show about the things that bring us together. And it's a show about diasporic immigrant enclaves and how they fit into the American tapestry, how it all comes together in this American melting pot that some people still think is an important thing to value. Uh, Some people still think it's important to value the immigrant experience, to value the importance of sheltering and protecting and nurturing refugees, of bringing people in to our country and not necessarily feeling like their assimilation is supposed to be a thing that causes them to lose their actual traditions, uh, because it is the traditions, sometimes coming from the outside, that make us stronger. It's a very political show, but it's really a show about food. It's really a show about how great a host Padma Lachmi is. She is uh, one of the best hosts on all of television. She is personable. She is curious. She is always prone to making people uncomfortable with double entendres and uh, teasing quips and jokes. And she's just a great person to lead us through this world. The food always looks good. The characters we meet are always touching and human and have stories to tell that could be the backgrounds for their own shows. And yet she dispatches with these narratives in 27-minute episodes. And you get the feeling after two seasons that this is a show that has not by any stretch of the imagination hit a wall in the number of immigrant experience stories it has to tell and in the importance of those stories. So uh, this is a show that can make you feel better about human nature and about the American identity. And it's nice to occasionally have those. I love the way that going back and forth like this, uh, it's it's just interesting to see us go just the pendulum swinging from like, this is a feel good show to like, this is not a feel good show to and back and forth again. My number eight, I'm not even sure which one it's categorized. Probably not a feel good show, but it's Scavenger's Reign, which is a show on Max. And that was one of the I mean, Dan, you and I were talking about trying to do like the kind of last last minute end of year cramming where you're just trying to squeeze in all the shows that you meant to get around to and you know whatnot and this was one that I 
that I kind of ended up binging at the last minute after starting to hear about it from other critics because I don't I don't think I saw much coverage of it when it came out. We didn't review it, but I had heard from so many people that it was good that I was like, all right, fine, I'll check it out. And I'm so glad I did. It's an adult animated show about a bunch of, you know, set in the future and a bunch of human travelers crash land on this alien planet. So it's essentially a survival drama. Uh, but one of the things that felt so special to me about it, well, first and foremost, I love the world that it's created. Uh, it, Scavenger's Reign doesn't just like introduce a cute few new like cute little porgs or whatever. They in- introduce entire ecosystems. They show you the entire life cycle of like how this, uh, how the different animals and plants in this uh, world kind of fit together and live together and live and die together and how it, and how that goes on and on and on. Some of it is really just dazzling. Some of it is really weird. Some of it is familiar. Some of it is a lot of it is grotesque, especially once it starts to really impact the people in it. Because this is also a show that can be really brutal about um, like it really admires how how wondrous and beautiful nature can be, but also just how brutal and unforgiving and often kind of disgusting it can be. So if you're thinking of watching it, fair warning, there's a fair bit of uh, like, you know, body horror, kind of just like that alien type goriness in this. And one thing I love about it is I it's, I feel like a lot of survival dramas are just about battling the elements. This one is very much about these people learning how to engage with this environment that they've been dropped into. And, uh, you know, you follow three different kind of small groups of survivors and each of them make their way through it and kind of deal with this situation they've been thrust into in these different ways. One of the most memorable arcs is a guy that (laughs) falls under like a sort of hypnotic trance from this weird kind of toad-like creature and like starts doing its bidding. It gets really, it gets really dark and twisted and violent and kind of scary. And I don't know, it's just, there's a lot of shows that we watch about like, oh, people are on alien plants. There's robots there and like animals and whatnot. But I, I can't think of that many times where I've seen one that just felt so much like it did transport me to to something that felt genuinely different and foreign and uh, that, that really just made my eyes bug out with like, oh my God, how did they even think of these very cool uh, animals and such? So big recommend. How far would I have to get into the series to get to the Hypnotoad? Oh, he shows up like pretty early. Episode one or two. Okay. Well, I watched the I watched the first episode just to get a feeling for it, and it's it's definitely beautiful. I was not necessarily hooked by it, but it's gorgeous animation, and it you know a lot of lot of kind of as you say, it's it's a lot of environment and a lot of how ecosystems interact and stuff, and and very very beautiful animation. I just wasn't hooked on a personal level, but perhaps I needed to watch more. I guess the shorter way to put it is, it's like Miyazaki and Annihilation had a baby yes. kind of which is kind of a strange description but maybe it kind of gives you yeah based on what i watched i think that's actually a really good analogy miyazaki meets annihilation i think that sounds a lot like what i watched maybe i'll stick with it my number eight also somewhere between the darkly cynical and the hopeful uh would be fx's hulu's the bear hulu's fx is the bear fx on hulu's the bear FX presents The Bear on Hulu. Another year has gone by and we still have not figured out what the hell this FX on Hulu stuff is. We have not, unfortunately, uh, but it doesn't prevent us from appreciating the stuff we appreciate, which includes The Bear. Uh, Every year there's at least one or two shows in my top 10 where I get to the actual tabulation part and I'm like, eh, can I just eliminate show X or Y? And then I go and I look on either my notes or on the Wikipedia page and I, I look at basically individual episodes and i'm sort of reminded okay this show had seven great episodes this season well okay fine whatever whatever my resistance was 
that was silly. That was the way I was about the bear is I glanced back at the episodes and a lot of the conversation was about the fishes episode. And, and I understand why it's got all of the A-list stars. And so it's, you know, it's like 50 minutes where you're constantly like, Oh my God, they got that person to come in for a cameo. And then everyone's yelling at each other. And it really is like the, the most nightmarish family dinner you could ever imagine, except the fact that most people can imagine dinners exactly like that because they've experienced them. And so I understand why people latched onto it. But as I went through the season myself, I was struck by the fact that probably that episode was my fourth or fifth or sixth favorite episode of the season. And if an episode that high profile and that effective, because it's unquestionably an effective episode, if that was only my fourth or fifth favorite episode of the season, clearly the bear needed to be in my top 10. And, you know, I'm I'm fine with that ultimately being the consensus I had to come to because there are, are so many great episodes in this season in addition to the Fishes episode. And that includes I loved uh, Sunday, which had Ioetta Beery's character going on a Chicago restaurant call with lots of real life Chicago chefs. I thought that was a great episode. I loved the episode with uh, Lionel Boyce's character in Copenhagen learning his craft. That was a beautiful episode of TV. Forks with Eben Moss Bacharach's character at the at the center of things. I thought that was a great episode. And the season in general, I thought, did a great job of bringing out the supporting characters who were there in the first season, but were maybe a little bit in the background behind. Jeremy Allen White. The show was much more of a pure ensemble in the second season, and, and I thought it was much better for that. Apparently, I really loved the second season of The Bear, even if I didn't think I loved it necessarily when I was watching it. That's why it's important to occasionally make top 10 lists to find out what you truly love. With season one, I liked not love the first season, um, but I was surprised that I, I really liked the second season. I think it's a uh, not like a leaps and bounds improvement on season one, but it just felt like it was firing on all, all cylinders in a way where the first one felt like it was still figuring itself out a little bit. I think it's overall a sweeter season I think part of that is as you said the ensemble really comes to the fore so and that is one of the season's real strengths is you get such a better sense of how these people fit together what you know what draws them together what their dynamics are like with each other and whatnot and you know as you were running down your list of favorite episodes like I feel like each one you named I just kept being like oh yes that one I love that one I love that one I love that one I think the Richie episode Forks is probably one of my favorite episodes of anything that I've seen this year I just and I mean I'm wearing a Taylor Swift sweatshirt, so, you know, like cards on the table, maybe that has something to do with it, the fact that they they soundtrack it with her. But I mean, I'm just kidding. I, I thought that one was the one that to me felt like it really got to the heart of what the show is so much about. Uh, I mean, this season felt like it was... Yeah, last season was it kind of just felt like people being thrown into hot water and, be, and like trying to scramble to figure out how to survive. This season felt like it stepped back enough for the characters to really think about like why am I doing this what do I want out of this like what does this mean to me and I found that to be such a such a rich and exciting experience I know that like the big guest stars like even in the one I just named Olivia Coleman just kind of randomly shows up because why not that's the kind of thing that happens on a show I know that that's you know kind of what gets like the the big that's the big splashy gimmick that gets all the headlines but I think what really stuck with me was you know like sure of course Olivia Coleman is always great of course I'm always happy to see Bob Odenkirk or Jamie Lee Curtis or whatever but what really stuck with me was just coming away was just coming away feeling like I I knew these characters so much better I understood them so much better and I love them so much more um but anyway that was my number seven so actually we can that was, we were gonna have to talk about that just about now anyway so do you want to I'll throw it back to you for your number seven we were gonna have to talk about it anyway we we're gonna be forced to talk about good tv that's what we we sometimes have to do such a hard job but someone's gotta do it 
My number seven, and we mentioned this in the headlines because it was just renewed for a second season, was Blue Eye Samurai on Netflix, which was just one of the the great surprises of of the winter for me. Just a, a show that you settle in and just experience the audacity of what uh, Michael Green and Amber Noizumi are, are doing in it. Uh, it. It is far more brutal, far bloodier, more adult than necessarily I think I was expecting it to be. And I just appreciated it every turn the way it played with samurai tropes, revenge tropes, going off of its its background as Yentl meets Kill Bill, which I just love as a sales pitch for a TV show. The voices are fantastic. And really just the action scenes and the way they are orchestrated with the anime animation style, which borrows heavily from a variety of Japanese artistic traditions. They're, they're just whole episodes that stretch by that are just action scenes. There's, there's a break into a, a fortress slash ca- uh, castle that's a full episode. People are getting sliced to bits people are getting stabbed people are getting again sliced to bits jumping over (laughs) things falling through things it is a brutal hour of television and you can absolutely just sit and watch it holding your breath for the entire time the place it took the story on an emotional level and took the characters on an emotional level surprised me and the place it decided that the show was going as it heads into its second season is absolutely my jam so no i i was surprised i'm not surprised that i liked this but surprised both by how much i liked it and by how much in the month since i finished it it has lingered in my brain as being just a special piece of television this one is one that i kind of you know we were talking about stuff that uh, where you're you're trying to figure out like which one do i ultimately leave in which one do i cut and whatnot and this one is definitely one that i i considered for my top side it made it into my honorable mentions I, more than anything else i just thought it was so fun to watch like it's it's just such an it's just such an exciting thrilling experience uh the violence in it and it is so violent is so beautiful and so cool for lack of a better term like I feel like while I was watching it I was just sitting on my couch just being like oh like oh my god you know like I just kept like gasping and like ooing and awing like a like a child at like all the very creative ways she would come to like come up with like slice a man in half or like literally hack her way through just like armies of people and whatnot uh the voice cast which is almost entirely asian asian american asian canadian uh with the exception of Kenneth Branagh doing a kind of a strange I don't even know, British, Irish-ish accent, whatever. He plays the one white guy in it, but the the cast is the cast is is fantastic. Maya Erskine, I think, has just she she plays this character who's very stoic, but she has so much charisma that, uh, as this as this character who I think that I think that because it's such a mix of tropes, it could have seemed very lazy and very paint by numbers. But I do like that it it breathes so much life into each of them. Um, I love the experience of just kind of getting to wander this world with these characters. It's I wrote in my review that it's not a it's not a fantasy show, but it kind of scratched that same itch for me of like, you know, watching something like The Witcher and like just kind of hanging out with these characters while they develop their weird prickly bonds and uh, finding out what the ins and outs of this world are like and whatnot. And it was often very funny. It was also surprisingly sexy. You were talking about how it's it's very adult. And one of the things that I appreciated about it is the show that it's very candid about sex, about violence. It's very, it's it does not make any apologies for, for being an adult animated show and, and does not try to appeal to like, you know, some four quadrant nonsense. So yeah, I don't know. I just, I thought it was fantastic. I thought it was fun. I can't 
cannot wait to see where season two goes. What's your number six? Uh, number six was Last Call. I think the full title is Last Call When a Serial Killer Stalked Queer New York, which is a mouthful. So we will just call it Last Call. But it is about it is a true crime docuseries about a string of murders that took place in the 90s uh, with a killer that was specifically targeting gay men picked up at, you know, gay nightlife spots and whatnot. And, uh, you know, there's there's never any shortage these days of true crime docuseries, of stuff that, you know, revisits some of the most sordid episodes of the 90s or whatever. But one of the things that I was so struck by when I was watching this was that I feel like I feel like so much of the time those, you know, necessarily focus on on the crime, on the person committing the crime. Like a lot of tension often just comes from like, ooh, like who's the killer? Are they going to catch them? How did they do it? Why did they do it? And whatnot. And one of the and, you know, even as they claim to care about the victims, it, it's hard not to see the attention shifting in that direction. And one of the things that I really, really appreciated about this documentary was how good a job it did of focusing on the victims and not in like an eat your vegetables, like this is good for you way, but just in a way where it just clearly cared so much about them. It, it just gives you like, you know, they interview all these people that were in their lives and you know like their family members their their exes stuff like that and you just get such a vivid picture of not just who these people were but what they meant to these people how they fit into these communities the histories they belong to and I, I just found that to be such a moving experience that really just made me rethink you know how we that really just made me think about like how we think about these stories what we want out of them how we should be thinking about them how to center the victims in all of this instead of just focusing on the salacious details of like who's the killer why did he do it etc yeah hbo seems to have one of these basically every week sometimes two per week true crime documentary documentary about some horrible situation you either don't know about or all or don't remember and and this was the best of them to me I, I think without any question as you say it does a great job of situating the victims as people to to give them families to give them stories to focus on the people that they were close to and and not just to view them as people who were murdered there's still a lot of anger to it it still is very much a documentary about institutional failings and why institutions fail, particularly the police, but also the media. Sort of how is something like this? How is a serial killer preying on New York's gay community? How is it allowed to slip through the cracks? How is it allowed to slip through the cracks in that particular period of the AIDS epidemic? What were people able to get their minds around crusading for? And then where did people have blank spots? And I think that that is a lot of what this covers is, you know, why is this not a story you know why was this not a story that people were marching for and protesting around at the time and it goes into a lot of depth on that that i thought was was very interesting and and this also has the rare distinction of being an hbo documentary that was pretty much the right length it pretty much told the story in the right frame of time and and so i definitely want to give it <laughs> credit for that not being too long not being too short my number six show was the second season of dark winds on amc the first season i thought was decent uh but they had a lot of ground that they had to cover to expositionalize around the lee porn and chi characters from the tony hillerman novels and to me mostly the first season felt like a proof of concept it was like okay Here's Zon McLaren as a leading man. Here's what we'd be able to do with this if you give us a little bit more time. Hopefully you'll give us the second season and we'll be able to do this. The second season is indeed the show coming into its own. It is a 
really good six episode mystery adaptation and it doesn't go on too long it doesn't rush through things too short it tells a good mystery against a both Native American and Southwestern backdrop that's completely distinctive to this story and more than anything Zon McLaren is fantastic and I've said this over and over again in the past couple months and I will continue to say it go and look at the Emmy category for lead actor in a drama from the Emmys that we will eventually give out at some point I believe January now at this point it, you know from like seven years ago it's all become kind of crazy and pointless. But you look at the lead actor in a drama category, and thanks to a number of shows coming to an end, there are going to be basically an entire category's worth of nominations available. Son McLaren is giving one of the five best performances by a lead actor in a drama series on television. And if voters do not find a way to recognize this performance, that is that is on them, and it is an error. It is not a bad choice. It is myopia and ignorance. And so uh, I look forward to saying over and over again that next year's Emmys will be invalid if Zon McLaren is not in the lead actor in a drama category. Invalid, worthless, pointless. There is no way that there will be six months of dramatic performances between January and the end of May, the eligibility window. That will be better than Zon McLaren's performance in Dark Winds. Give him an Emmy nomination. This is a really good show but it is a great performance at the center of it. And sometimes a great performance at the center of a show is enough to put a show at number six on a list. I will take this one and then shift it back to you. My number five show was Amazon's I'm a Virgo, which is one of the most difficult shows to adequately explain to people of the year, because it is just really hard to say that it is a Marxist fairy tale about a 13 foot tall black teenager in Oakland who becomes a superhero because a billionaire superhero who he looks up to is actually a supervillain. Or something to that effect. And if you've ever wanted to know how a 13-foot-tall uh, teenager has sex, I'm a Virgo will tell you that. But if you also want to know about racial inequities in the justice system and the increasingly acrimonious relationship between the haves and have-nots in late-stage capitalism, Boots Riley wants to tell you that story as well. It is a whimsical, funny, romantic angry TV show and uh, Jarell Jerome's performance at the center is excellent. Walton Goggins as the aforementioned uh, billionaire supervillain who definitely isn't in any way modeled after Jeff Bezos. Definitely though, you know, they look a lot different. So totally they can't be similar. Uh, and anyway, lots of great supporting performances, Carrie Young, Olivia Washington, etc. It is a wild, weird, entirely distinctive show. And, uh, yeah, I'm a Virgo is a show that I think is tremendous and very much of a moment in 2023. Yeah, I feel like a, when I look at my favorite shows of any given year, one of the things I love the most is when a show just feels so entirely itself. It just feels like such a singular voice. This one definitely does. Boots Riley is. It, it's when you watch it, it, it feels like. It feels like a show that was made by Boots Riley, and I mean that is a great compliment. I loved his uh, previous movie, and as you say, the the cast across the the board is excellent. I loved all of them. I love the I love how um kind of textured this world feels down to the down to like how handmade it is. Like the fact like the fact that he's a thirteen foot tall 
tall boy so he wears so the clothes he wears are not just like big versions not not just like a, oh it's a t-shirt that dan would wear but just larger it's just like a bunch of stuff patched together and just when you look at where he lives it's also kind of like that i, I love the kind of almost handmade feel to it i love the righteous anger that's coursing through this show i, I love how uh genuinely really tender and sweet it could be especially in the scenes of gerald jerome kind of wooing Olivia Washington like yes the fact that they have sex is insane and you know it makes for a very entertaining sequence but it's also just like a very genuinely tender sweet heartfelt young romance <laughs> Walton Goggins is is so good at playing a specific type of guy and I think he does that really well here um yeah no this one this was this is another one that was probably there were times when I was making my list where it, it was it was on there then it fell off then it was on there again then it fell off ultimately as we were talking about at the beginning of the show you just have to you know at some point just draw the line and say well this is my list so that's why I didn't make it but it was it was very close for me as well and speaking of things that feel very unique my number five was Mrs. Davis on Peacock uh, which is a show that I admired because it is insane. It's a it's a show that it, it's one of those shows where after I saw the first episode, I was like, wow, that was really wild. But there's no way they could just keep this up for, for the rest of the season without flagging. And, you know, I'm not saying everything in it was absolutely perfect, but I was really impressed by how well they kept going, how often they managed to shock me despite being like, well, now that I've seen like, you know, this nun on a quest for the Holy Grail and all that, like, like, you know, it, it, nothing can shock me anymore. And yet somehow it just kept throwing new surprises at me. I really love that. It, it kind of just felt like, well, like someone doing a magic trick where like, you know, you're being fooled. You don't know how, but you're like, no, I'm going to be prepared for it. And then they do something and you're just like, oh, damn, I did not see that coming somehow, even though I was thinking about like how I, I totally was going to see it coming. Betty Gilpin is so charismatic as this nun who is very sincere in her belief, but also very sarcastic and kind of a badass and like, kind of a wise ass. Uh, she has a, um, she's really well matched by Jake McDormand who plays this like kind of like very sad cowboy figure. It's a show that's, you know, Mrs. Davis is ultimately about the the nun going out, trying to destroy this AI that's sort of like Siri meets ChatGPT on steroids. It basically runs the entire world, but she has her own kind of personal reasons for having a grudge against it. So she agrees to go on a quest for the Holy Grail so that she can destroy it uh, because it agrees that it will destroy itself in, ex in exchange and whatnot, and which already kind of sounds insane. And then as it keeps going, you're, you've got, uh, you know, people's heads literally exploding. You've got a whole sequence where they're chasing after a giant whale. You've got a literal Schrodinger's cat. You've got a, a weird version of Excalibur. You, I, I don't know. It's just, it's one of those shows where I feel like when I try to tell people what, what the plot is, it makes me sound like I've lost my mind. And I really admire that about it. I appreciated its craziness and its eccentricities, but I found that in the balance overall, Mrs. Davis didn't work for me. All of the different bits of quirkiness while sometimes I found them extremely, extremely inspired, I, none of it added up to me ultimately at all in the slightest. But on the other hand, this is the kind of show where I would always encourage uh, streaming services, networks, whatever, channels, studios to make more shows like Mrs. Davis, because whatever it is and however much it does or does not succeed for me, it is a huge swing 
And I will always admire huge creative swings, however much they do or don't hit home for me. On to number four, as we get closer and closer to our top three, where there will be no need to go back and forth because there will only be three shows. My number four show was Wrestlers on Netflix, one of those shows that I definitely regret uh, us not reviewing. It happens occasionally. Things slip through the cracks. And... Look, part of why maybe I didn't review it is because I've I've said all the nice things I have to say about Greg Whiteley and and the Last Chance You and Cheer franchises. I think he is doing the best work on TV in the sports documentary framework. He he has a formula of character driven, wonderfully shot sports anthologies, and I respect the hell out of them and love them. Uh, Wrestlers, for me, ended up being the most dramatically satisfying of the Greg Whiteley shows so far, in large part because the world of this second-tier professional wrestling promotion where it takes place, it's it's a bunch of people who know how to play characters. That is that is what it is, and they know how to be characters themselves and how to play characters in the ring. And The project of the show is looking at these people who are colorful and outsized in the ring and finding what their humanity looks like and seeing how realistic or unrealistic their dreams of getting from this minor league wrestling outfit to the big time, how it is. It is a show that is populated by vivid characters, people who you want to cheer for, occasionally people who you want to boo for, and the action in the ring is is fantastic, and it's fantastically choreographed by the people who are doing it in the ring, but it's fantastically directed by the wrestler's team. This is absolutely the best I have understood the elaborate choreography of wrestling from both an appreciative audience standpoint and a behind-the-scenes perspective and seeing the way that these stories get carefully arced out seeing the acting that some of these people do uh seeing the the kind of deathmatch aspect of it there's there's a whole episode in which a mother and daughter fight in the ring and they fight on a bed of thumbtacks and they have thumbtacks stuck in them and it's like the wrestler the mickey rourke movie but it just it it's both heartbreaking and harrowing and hard to watch and yet really, really silly. And I think that there's a lot of that. And it's seven episodes and it's just it's just great TV. It's great TV if you like and love the world of professional wrestling. And honestly, to me, it's great TV if you aren't necessarily convinced that professional wrestling is or isn't a sport. I think this will confirm that while it is both sport and theater, it is absolutely sport as well. Yeah, this is, this is one that I just, it was only seven episodes. I, I hope that there's more of it because I would I would watch lots and lots of wrestlers on Netflix. That is a great pitch. Uh, I unfortunately haven't seen it, but you know maybe it'll be one of those ones where I, I catch up after the fact and then am sad that I didn't watch it in time. Uh, one what I did watch in time was my number four, which was that a good segue? Uh, which is the other two on Max in its third and final season. I always liked the show from season one. I thought it was it was very funny. Uh, you know, it's the way that it skewers Hollywood and showbiz and whatnot, but also these these two sad sacks that are kind of trying to break in. But it just felt like in season three, it upped its game on every level. It got funnier. It got more surreal. It got more biting. Uh, it, it just, I, I enjoyed it. I enjoyed it so much. I think that the cleverest thing it did is for two seasons, you have watched Carrie and Brooke kind of be on the outskirts but like trying to break in and like kind of 
debase themselves all the time or humiliate themselves uh, on the way to trying to make something of themselves. And in season three, it does that brilliant thing of giving them exactly what they want on some level and just watching them implode. Like Harry finally starts to get some real traction in his career as an actor. Brooke, uh, you know, it starts to like in almost improbably starts to succeed in proving that she's a she's a that she has a purpose in life because she's such a good philanthropic person and of course as often happens uh when you've got really flawed characters who finally get the thing they've been chasing it just it just turns them into monsters uh and it is so fun to watch you've also got Molly Shannon in a very funny but also kind of bittersweet storyline where she becomes she has now gotten to the level of being like an Oprah level person and she finds and the show really deals with how that how now she is disconnected from the kind of regular lady life that had made her such a that kind of had made her who she was to begin with so it's it's really funny. I love that it just it takes jabs at everything. It has such absurd references. Like there's a there's a whole episode that's sent, that's like an extended pleasant bill homage because just you know why not? It makes fun of billionaires who are obsessed with going to space. It makes fun of um, exclusively gay you know first gay Disney character like that kind of nonsense. It it makes fun of AIDS plays that are very self-indulgent. I don't know. I thought it was I thought it was really, really funny. And at the end of it, it does it does still have some heart. I mean, it's never I feel like the humor reminds me a lot of time of 30 Rock, but it's always been a sweeter show at its core. And it and it finally does get these this family to a place that feels just right. A little bit sweet, a little bit sour. I just I, I laughed my ass off watching this entire season. I've never loved the other two as much as the people who who really love it and, you know, put it at number four on their list in the top ten. But looking over the third season and looking over the episodes in the third season, it was a great season of television. It really just was. And, uh, you know, I don't know that it added up necessarily wholly to me, but episode by episode, you know, the Apple, the staged Applebee's thing, like an episode out of the rehearsal, that was brilliant. The thing about, uh, about the AIDS play was, was scathing and tremendous. The space stuff, definitely made the point that it was attempting to make the stuff with globby and and big corporations boasting about gay representation because a a blob is a gay character suddenly it it was there, there was a lot of really good stuff in this season of of the other two so yeah let's get towards our top three which is a shared top three and i, I it's definitely never happened with us before i don't know that it's ever it, even come close to happening with anyone who I've ever been paired with as a critic before that, you know, these, these were just kind of the top three shows of the year. And, and to me, when I put together my list, there, there was nothing even close. Like the, the top three was, was my list and everything else I was filling in around it. The the top three was the top three. And so I was, I was happy to see you came to roughly the same conclusion. So let's start with both of our number three shows of the year. Boof. Well, it was actually the same for me where it was just when I sat down to make my list, I was like, well, I know which are going to be, you know, in my top three. I have a pretty good idea of what order they're going to be in. And it was the rest of the list that was hard to come up with. So, uh, you know, strange as it is, yes, we ended up with the exact same top three. Maybe this is just kind of a slow merging hive mind situation. And by like 2026, we'll have the same exact same top 10. I don't know. We'll see. Stay tuned for a few years from now. 
Um, yeah, Beef is, of course, a show that starts out with a kind of absurd premise of two people having a road rage incident in a parking lot where they don't eat, their cars don't even crash. They're just mad at each other and honking at each other and flipping each other off. Then they go on this epic car chase. And then where normal people would maybe just go home and like complain to their roommate about it, they decide that they're just going to keep going. They can't just keep escalating this, this dumb feud over absolutely nothing. It's very funny. It's very, it's one of those shows where while I was watching it, I just kept gasping like, oh my God, no. Or just like, covering my face my hands because I was just like I cannot believe the the terrible decisions these people are making but but it's a show but so you know it's it's just wildly entertaining in that way it has it has a lot of uh, just thrilling twists and turns uh, but I think the thing that really surprised me that when I when I watched it was just just how uh how cathartic it is how emotional how how intuitive it is with the character's emotions and just you know and not and how well it understands not only their anger and their sadness, but what it feels like, where it comes from, what they're doing with it. Uh, and as the show goes on, it starts to really extend that perspective to a lot of the other supporting characters as well. So you understand just so much about, you know, the the pain that these people are in. And I say that and, and it sounds really, you know, kind of just happy and serious. And it can it can be very, you know, emotional, but it's it also remains wildly entertaining throughout. Uh, it's got some incredible performances uh, anchored by Steven Yoon, who is always, always, always excellent. It is excellent again here. Ali Wong, who is also very good. She's someone that I have liked in a lot of things, but I've never seen her kind of stretch herself to the extent that she does here and I found it to be really impressive they don't necessarily have a lot of screen time together because they're often just kind of anonymously trying to sabotage each other but when they do it is it is electric uh you know not in a romantic sense just in a sense where you understand like these people feel like two halves of the same whole even though they ostensibly really hate each other because they kind of get each other on a level that not everyone does I love that the it's a show that is set really specifically in uh in you know, Southern California. And I love how specific it is about the kind of nuances of Asian American communities within Southern California. As someone who grew up in one of those, there's there like, you know, there's a scene where like Stephen Yun goes to church. And I was just like, I feel like this was filmed in the church that I grew up going to. It wasn't literally, but it just felt so just spot on with like, what it looks like, what the people in it are like, what the dynamic of that whole space is like. So it just it just felt so, you know, detailed, so, so rich, so lived in. It was, it was a show that I think, I think for me, the experience of watching the show is best exemplified by the fact that at the end of the first episode, uh, Steven Yeun has just kind of snuck in her house under false pretenses, peed all over the place. She finds out she gets mad. She chases him out the door and they're, they're both just fucking, you know, furious at each other, but there's also this like kind of manic glee on their faces. And then, um, and then Hooba Stink starts playing. And I started crying when I watched it. I was just like, I don't know what is this weird alchemy this show is doing where I am laughing. I am also I'm thinking about these these are horrible people. And I'm also just feeling like I really, 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 really get it on some level. I don't know. I thought it was I thought it was just such a confident, uh, unique piece of storytelling. Yeah, it's it's a great show. And and to me, it it's the show that speaks best to the sense of cultural discomfort of 2023 of any show on on the list this this to me is you know when the the year that i may destroy you came out it was my number one show and my my explanation for why it was my number one show was if you had to show an alien what it felt like to live that year 
that's the show I would show them. And I, I think that beef is the is similarly the answer. If you if you wanted to show someone <laughs> what it was like to be angry all the time in 2023, beef is the show that illustrates it. And it illustrates it with both compassion, but also scathing contempt. Uh, some of the characters are, you know, Maria Bello's character in particular. That that is a great performance it is a great monstrous grotesque performance she's so good and and deserves not as much credit as Stephen Yeun and Ali Wong because they hold the show together it's their show but Maria Bello is is fantastic it's the best work she's ever done I think by a by a wide margin and it's a show where you sit there the entire time going gee if you just talk to someone for five minutes maybe we could have solved all of this within 20 minutes or you know just by not being an asshole but if there's anything that feels to me more like 2023 it's inadvertent escalation because of the inability to see the world through other people's perspectives uh and that's a lot of what beef is and it's a so it's a wonderful show and uh, i feel very pleased grateful nervous hopeful that netflix is not going to think they need to give us a second season at any point ever it it does not feel like it requires that so it's a great show number two on both of our lists was hbo's succession which in any other year would have been a perfectly reasonable number one show of the year because this is an all-time great show that had an all-time great final season and it was pretty all-time great uh and it was a show that I thought the the season started a little slow. I thought that before we got to the Connor's wedding episode, it wasn't like I was frustrated or turning on the show. I just thought, okay, this is this is succession setting the pieces up. I'll be curious to see where they go. Then Connor's wedding hits and your jaw drops to the floor and suddenly you're like, oh, okay, this is apparently where we're going and we're going there now. And from there, the season just snowballed and snowballed and snowballed one great episode after another one fantastic performance after another a finale that is that is to me a perfect finale for this show whether it's necessarily an all-time great finale full stop i i don't know but it's exactly the right finale to me of of this particular show and all of the performances just you you could list too many performances too long uh you know, Karen, Cult- Karen Culkin in the uh, the funeral episode, as good as it gets. James Cromwell in the funeral episode, as good as it gets. Sarah Snook all through the season just keeps elevating and elevating and elevating. Jeremy Strong, as much as we make fun of his method acting weirdness, he is a fantastic method acting weirdo and deserves all the credit for that. One guest star after another, just that that gross, gross performance by Alexander Sarsgaard, who is just the worst and so perfect at being the worst. Yeah, it's, it's just a show that makes you feel horrible about rich people on a weekly basis. I, I have no problems with that uh, whatsoever. Uh, great final season of Succession. Succession, great show, still absolutely hilarious lots of emotional pathos this season as well yeah i i remember looking back now i'm like it makes perfect sense to me that they tossed in logan's death you know like kind of early in the season so that you could watch the character scramble to figure out what happens after that but at the time it happened it was a shock and i felt like really kind of scrambled the board in an exciting way because by that point we'd already been through several seasons of watching like this character's up this character's down this character was on the way up but then they fucked up so now they're all back on their way down and whatnot and you know i could have 
it was it was fun I feel like I could have kept watching that forever but in kind of you know as it headed toward the end game it made so much sense to just scramble the board all together and be like you know this this kind of world-shaking event has occurred and now we're going to see how these characters deal with the fallout and uh it led to as you said just so many tremendous episodes more great episodes than i can count i mean succession is one of those ones where you know it they fill up so much of the emmy slots and i get so cranky about it except that whenever i look at it it is always so hard for me to say well this person doesn't deserve it this person doesn't deserve it because they're all just across the board excellent um I love the finale too. I think, as you said, it's a it's a perfect finale for this show. It makes so much sense for who these people are, and it's a finale that while I was watching it, like you know, I I, I was I was very taken by his twists and turns, and I'm not someone who's good at predicting what's gonna like happen, so I was very shocked and like surprised by a lot of it. But it's it, it felt both shocking and inevitable afterwards in the best possible way, the way that you want a story like that to end, or at least the way that I do. And I think that one thing the show did really well throughout was. Uh, it was kind of striking that balance between I hate these characters so much, but I also somehow weirdly feel for them so, so, so deeply. And that is, and I think that's a tough balance to strike a lot of the time. It can go in one direction or the other. It's easier and sometimes to just say like, these are straight up villains and you could just start rooting against them now or, uh, you know, like, oh, sure, they they messed up, but ultimately he's really a good guy deep down. I, I, I like that succession kind of somehow managed to never tilt too far in one direction so to the end i was like fuck these people but also my heart is just <laughs> shattered for all of them and uh yeah i mean the the fact that it kind of it's not the last scene in the in the entire show but like the fact that it all kind of comes to a head with these three fucking brats i'm sorry am i allowed to curse on this i think i am sure right? All right, good. Uh, with these three brats screaming at each other in a boardroom stuff like i'm the eldest boy just like you know, chef's kiss, the the perfect way for for these people to go down in flames. And having said that, our number one, our shared number one of this of, of the year was another show that was in its uh, final season, and that is Reservation Dogs season three. Um, I think this show is probably I don't it, it's probably made my list every year that it's been on. I don't know. I can't, I can't really think that far back. I don't, uh, but, um, but it's a, it's a show that, and, you know, kind of started out feeling like such a bold, audacious breath of fresh air. Like you're, it just, it, it already felt like the, the world felt so lived in the characters felt so fully realized just from the jump. Like it already kind of felt like it, it was confident about what it was doing and not afraid to take risks. And it's been such a delight to watch as the show goes on, you know, not kind of calcify into like just doing the same old things, but like continuing to expand its ideas of like what it wants to do and who it wants to focus on and what it wants to, to be about. And a big theme of this this past season, I think it, it was fitting to me that as it moved into this last season, so much of the season focused on looking back, looking back at, uh, you know, the, the generations that came before, looking back even farther than that in the case of the episode with Dear Lady, which is set, you know, even farther back in the past than the kind of 1970s-ish uh, Days and Confused-ish episodes. Um, and, uh, really, and, and really making you see this fuller picture of you know it's always like of course like the the reservation dogs themselves those four are always at the center but i i've loved the way that it kind of zooms out so that you see the community and then and then it zooms out even further so you see the history of the community you see how it's all connected you see how uh you know certain things echo certain things mutate as they go on certain things that happened long ago their effects 
can still very much be felt in the past, but there's also just, but it, it, it is also a sense of optimism about the future and about like the way that these kids can take all the stuff that has come before them and carry it with them as they go, as they go forward. And like, I'm seriously just getting emotional now thinking about it. I, I think that's how, it, it's how tremendous it was. And of course it does all this while like, I feel like I'm making it sound like it's kind of very like stuck and serious and like, it's not, it's, it continues to be this like really audacious show that could be like, you know, really just like tear jerkingly like emotional at sometimes, like very, very funny at other times. Uh, the Dear Lady episode was a big standout for me. And that one really just used horror tropes as a way to think about uh, the the nightmare that were these Indian boarding schools in, in the past. And, and, uh, and, and it's just, it's a show that it feels like I'm just I'm so glad that we got to watch it. I love that I love that to the end it was a show that was just unafraid to just kind of go for go go swing big, you know, tackle big ideas. Uh, and uh, yeah, I was sad that it was ending so soon, but I do think it ended on a really really lovely send off for these characters that I have loved now for a few years. Yeah, it was a a beautiful ending for Reservation Dogs, and I think it's it's illustrative to go back and look at the at the pilot which is a great pilot it's it's a very very good very assured pilot but the pilot is still fundamentally about these four characters who want to get out it, it, it's about these characters who are who are grieving the suicide of their best friend and they fear that remaining in this community is going to take them down a, ser- a similar path and then for three seasons the show without ever saying okay seriously you you four kids we're now going to teach you an important lesson it reminds you why people stay and why it's important that people stay and why it's important that people find their place find their community and find their place within a a historical continuum and to me it's it's a beautiful idea for a show that starts out as being about four kids wanting to leave to end up after three seasons being about a full community of people and with several of the kids wanting to stay, wanting to be a bigger part of the community, wanting to follow in the footsteps of elders, wanting to follow in just a culturally specific footstep rather than attempting to escape and assimilate. And yet it also made clear that that's not everybody's decision and that all the decisions are are right, and it's it's just such a wonderful ensemble from the four main kids, and and Devery Jacobs is the one who I keep mentioning, and and deservedly so because she also wrote one of the season's best episodes and directed one of the season's best episodes, and her episode, which is basically a two hander with Ethan Hawke, is one of the year's best episodes of any TV show easily. But also the full ensemble of of indigenous actors, who some of whom have been given many chances before to do great things, but they're given a great chance here. Some of whom haven't been some, you know, whether we knew how funny West Studi was necessarily West Studi's hilarious. I think people knew that Zon McLaren was hilarious, but he's great here. Also Gary Farmer for sure has been hilarious before he's fantastic. Just the entire cast wonderfully used, wonderfully assembled. And the entire story of the reservation dogs journey over three seasons was, was close to perfect. It was my number one show this year. It was my number one show last year. And it was my number three, show the year before that that's uh that is a pretty simple and pretty clean recipe for greatness before we change to the next segment and talk a little bit about shows that we didn't like nearly as much leslie what'd you like this year 
So I tried keeping a list again of everything that I watched. It didn't work. I think I got, uh, yeah, there, I just uh, scanned it and there's like, it's so old. <laughs> but the stuff that I really, that stands out, I make no apologies for loving Ted Lasso. I thought that was a lot of fun. That hits me right in the heart. And I, anyone who listens to our show knows that I have a, a big affinity for, for Ted Lasso and the, and the optimism that comes with it. Um, I loved the final season of Sex Education. Obviously, I'm, um, I'm right there with both of you on Succession sticking the landing. I haven't caught up on Reservation Dogs yet. This is where I duck for cover because I'm not looking at the dirty looks that you're both probably looking at me right now. We're both smiling at you. We're smiling at you contemptuously, but we're smiling at you. No <laughs> dirty looks at all. I also really liked Primo on Freebie. I thought that was incredible and uh, that still hasn't been renewed, nor has High School, which actually I just looked it up, came out in October 2022, which is insane. Freebie, what are you doing? These are your two of your greatest shows. Renew them. Put them on Amazon proper. Market them because they are terrific. Anyway, that's really what I've got. Um, I can't really think of anything off the top of my head, um, but usually it's just kind of a lot of the things that that you both have, have touched on. Somebody somewhere remains one of one of my favorites. I think it's it's just absolutely terrific. And you know, Angie, you spoke a lot about a show having confidence and and knowing itself, and that's what I feel like somebody somewhere is. And yeah, that's those are really the ones that that jump that jump out the most for me. And thank you for asking, even though I'm not a critic. You can also feel free to sh uh, share some of the shows you've hated because let's move on to our next topic, which we promise will be shorter because we don't like, uh, we don't oh, like wait. herping. Hold what? on, before we get to that, two more that I that I really, really love this show. Excellent. That I were actually kind of surprised didn't make your lists. Shrinking and Poker Face. Well, Angie didn't love Shrinking. You can read her review on the thehollywoodreporter.com uh, somewhere. So, and Poker Face, did Poker Face end up making your second 10? Angie? I think it did. I did really like Poker Face. It didn't, it, it wasn't a show where I was like, oh, I don't like it. That's why I didn't make my top 10. It was a show that I really, really liked. Then there was just other shows that I liked more. Shrinking, I was less a fan of. There were elements of it that I liked, but overall, not my cup of tea. But a lot of people really loved it. And the stuff that it was strong about it, I thought was really strong. So I, I, uh, I could completely get loving that show. Yeah. Oh, and uh, my last big one, obviously, is The Bear, which I mean, I don't, the only person I know who doesn't watch that is my wife. <laughs> get her on that. Uh, I'm trying. Yeah. It took me how it took me years to get her to watch Succession, and then after the pilot, she's like, "Okay, okay, you were right." <laughs> it's all that matters is that eventually she thinks you're right. So, okay, let's change gears now to number four: stuff we don't like. Angie, again, we're not gonna we're not gonna belabor this. Uh, we're not gonna. We're not going to spend an hour talking about the shows we don't like, though surely we could because, you know, the, look, there there were there were a lot of shows that premiered this year and a lot of them are really great and a lot of them we really love and we just talked for over an hour about the shows that we love. Give me a couple things you didn't love, Angie. Okay, here's one. My Life with the Walter Boys on Netflix. We've talked a lot about shows that like really know themselves, that are really trying to swing for the fences, do something original and bold and have like such a specific view of like, who these people are, what the story is, what the world is like. This show has none of that. It felt really like it's not, it's a show that like, I almost feel bad saying that I really, really disliked it because it's not like it did something where I was like, oh, this is this, this really outrages and upsets me. It's actually the opposite. Like I would, I almost prefer shows where I'm mad at it. Like this one was frustrating because there was just, it just felt like there was so little to react to. It felt so 
generic and sh and shallow and flat like it was just a collection of, of like kind of tropes that didn't really kind of work the way that they're supposed to like I love a rom-com formula as much as anyone don't get me wrong but I mean I'll put it this way usually when I watch a show even if I don't like it at the beginning after I've seen a few episodes I start to warm to it kind of in spite of myself because it's hard not to when you spend that much time with these with a with a person even if it's a fictional person that you're watching on a screen this one to the end I was just like I don't know what these people are or what they want from me how do I get out of here so yeah, I'm sorry. This one was just extremely not one of my favorites this year. What's one that you didn't like, Dan? Oh no, it's and and Walter Boys is an awful show. It's uh, it's it's just it's just amateur hour, and it's amateur hour with completely unremarkable, uninteresting characters, and for the most part, not even unlikable characters. Because again, we can we oh, can I both. Some of them were pretty unlikable. It, yes, but not unlikable in an interesting way. Like it's no, it's, it's not, not succession. Yes, it's not succession. It's not like you can't make a show of people who you would never want to spend time in a room with. You know, the succession people you would not want to have too long in a room with those people because they're awful but you wouldn't want to spend too long in a room with the characters on the walter boys because they're boring as hell it, you know it's just like i would prefer to do something else as opposed to spending 45 minutes at a stretch with these people not it's painful to watch them it's surely there are better things to be done yeah that's that's definitely a a, a bad show and leslie watched the entire thing i did I judge <laughs> It's the okay. We what the heart wants. We talked about it. We talked about it last week, and and definitely there was chagrin there. We do not need to return to the chagrin. I feel like we should definitely continue to pick on Netflix. Netflix had a lot of good shows. Netflix had three shows in my top ten, which uh, which is a lot. So I hope Netflix knows I'm really and truly not picking on Netflix in general. But oh dear God, Squid Game: The Challenge was a perplexing and head-scratching misinterpretation of everything about the TV show. And what's been really striking for me is the number of people associated with the show and with Netflix who have given entirely tone-deaf uh, interviews subsequently. Our colleague James Hibbert had, had a good one where the producers made it clear they don't care at all about what the original TV show was about. Joe Adalian had a great interview with uh, Netflix's alternative programming guru who made it clear he didn't care at all what the show was about. It, it's just just so entirely people saying, yes, we are attempting to capitalize on a very, very, very popular idea. And we are going to completely ignore that everything we are doing and capitalizing on it undermines absolutely every topical aspect of the show entirely. And instead you have the producers being like, yeah, really, the show's about teamwork. No, it's fucking not. The show is about economic desperation. And if you make a reality show in which economic desperation is not what the show is about, then you have not made a reality show that is based on Squid Game. You have made a silly reality show where people spend 45 minutes licking pieces of honeycomb toffee because whatever, that was the thing they wanted to have them do. It's not like the show isn't occasionally proficiently made. I kept watching it, and I kept watching it because I was curious what they were doing. But every single step of the way, my reaction was, wow, you have missed the point of this entirely. Unfortunately, the show that I would mention next that I disliked in the year that does a similar thing is another Netflix show, uh, All the Light We Cannot See, which is a four-hour misinterpretation of a Pulitzer Prize winning novel. Just four hours of every adaptation decision being made incorrectly to baffling effect at every point 
failing to capture why the novel was as poetic and as successful as it was. The novel tells a very simple story in a way that is symbolically and emotionally resonant. The TV show makes a simple story complex in a way that is driven entirely by cliches and emotional manipulation. Like the first two episodes of All the Light We Cannot See, I'm like, okay, this is mediocre. I don't understand why they wanted to do it. Then the next two episodes, which have no connection whatsoever to the book and are just one awful idea after another and no clue what Hugh Laurie was doing. Not a bad performance, just a bad piece of character reimagining. Mark Ruffalo doing a, a stupid accent that just is, it's its all just a, a bad, bad TV show made from a good book that has flaws. But if you're adapting something, the best thing to do is to improve on the flaws from the subject matter, not make everything into a flaw. And All the Light We Cannot See is uh, just a, a dismal mess of a TV show. Uh, Angie, do you have any more Netflix shows to make fun of, or do you have shows on other stream on other services to make fun of? I, I invite, in fact, other services being called to account here. I wasn't going to make fun of any more Netflix shows. I will say that of the two shows that you said, I did not read the book All the Light We Cannot See, but to me, uh, the like, I watched a little bit of the sh- I watched about maybe like half the show. And I thought like, this is very leaden, but I guess I could see why it was popular. And then you told me about the book. And I was like, that doesn't sound like they have the same vibe at all. So yeah, a kind of a strange choice there. And Squid Game was one where I thought it was, I thought it was mostly competently made, but misses the point in a really horrifying way. Like you said, there have been so many interviews where they're like, it's not about capitalism. And you're like, yes, it is. It is not even subtle about it. And uh, and then when you and, and when you take away that subtext, you just have a bunch of people playing like children's games, which are not, which is not frankly that interesting to watch. Um, but I was gonna move on to talk about. Well, this is actually a show that you watched more of than I did, but I wanted to shout out a uh, Citadel, which is a reverse engineered franchise that feels like a reverse engineered franchise. I didn't watch a ton of it because I didn't have to because Dan uh, jumped on the grenade of reviewing that for for both of us. But it is one where when you watch it it does feel more like a business proposition than like a piece of art or a piece of entertainment or a story that someone really wanted to tell it feels like it was just built off a word cloud of like here are things some things that like viewers have liked in the past and like that they just got like you know focus groups to tell them like what should happen and it just didn't feel like at any point anyone really cared all that much about making it which made me wonder why i should care about watching it oh and that one's on amazon so not an netflix show there you go <laughs> yeah no that is that is a definite description of citadel which is accurate i i still kind of imagine a world in which a second season which actually had a storytelling imperative rather than just a a marketing and uh, franchising imperative could potentially be a better show but there is no question that this was made for business reasons and not narrative reasons and it is clear in every frame speaking of shows that take what really should be a simple not a simple genre but a fruitful genre to follow and you know it's it's just a spy thriller marvel and disney plus's secret invasion was probably one of my biggest disappointments of the year and just you have a TV show which is Samuel L. Jackson, Ben Mendelsohn, Olivia Coleman, Don Cheadle playing spy games. How could you screw that up? I guess you've got to watch Secret Invasion. It's it it is a show that at no point knows what its story is supposed to be, what the genre is it's trying to work in, 
or how to work to the strengths of a cast of actors who collectively have almost all strengths. There is nothing that Olivia Coleman can't do, and she's entertaining to watch here. So credit to her for that. You have to work hard to make Samuel L. Jackson as lifeless as he is in Secret Invasion. Ditto Don Cheadle. Ditto the entire supporting cast. Yeah, just so many people trying to rationalize why certain Marvel properties failed this year and you'll get the dumb people being like they went they went woke and they went broke no something's wrong in the storytelling machinery at this exact moment and this to me is a much better illustration of that than other disappointments over the years because this one should have been easy and instead it's a leaden dud let's do one more each I, I, again, beating beating dead horses while very, very entertaining is, you know, I, I prefer that we concentrated extensively on the positive. So so give me something else you disliked. One that I, well, Secret Invasion was actually going to be one that I, I brought up. That's another one where I, since I didn't have to watch the whole thing, I didn't have to, but it was it was striking how, how boring it was. I mean, one of the big headlines, the entertainment headlines this year has been just people being like, what is going on at Marvel? Are they, are they really just kind of slipping? And like, you watch shows like that and you do think like you know all other stuff aside like there there was a time when when it felt to me like you could it's not like I loved every single thing they put out or thought every single thing was a masterpiece but I felt like there was kind of they were kind of just like reliable in terms of the quality of the stuff that you were getting and it just feels like it's been all over the place this year and Secret Invasion is such a big example of that of just like as you said how 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 do you screw that up um, but I was gonna, I thought that I would maybe talk about extrapolations on Apple TV plus, which I don't think Dan even saw. Uh, it's, it's like the only show that Dan didn't watch. This one is a rather self-important, uh, warning about the dangers of climate change. And look, we have talked today a lot in the shows that we liked about things that tackle really big or important or weighty themes and do them like with, with a lot of finesse and grace and, and nuance. This is not that. Um, I get that the climate crisis is worth talking about, but this felt very much like it had a message that it needed to get out and kind of half-assedly put a show behind it. So it, it gives it a real, you know, eating your vegetable feel. I, I think, I know the idea is like, if you take this really serious discussion and you wrap them in these really compelling stories, packaged with these big stars, and kind of like uh, Scott Burns did with Contagion, he was also behind this and like, yeah, maybe people will pay attention and it'll, it'll be compelling. But I, I think that for that to work, you have to have characters that you actually care about and plot lines that actually feel like they're going somewhere. And this just mostly didn't. There were a couple chapters that I did find, you know, it's an anthology, so it's, it's uneven. There's a couple chapters that I, I did find to be more entertaining than others. But just on the whole, it felt like such a whiff for me. On the bright side, if you've ever wanted to know what it would feel like if a whale was voiced by Meryl Streep and just casually talking to Sienna Miller, it's does have that i have wondered that all the time i know you were telling me this very specific inquiry you know like last year and now you have the answer no this you're you're right though this was one where enough people told me i didn't need to watch it that i didn't uh for my for my last bad one i'm gonna make it a backhanded compliment i feel like that's the right way to steer back towards uh positivity i loved seven of eight episodes of peacock's bupkis i i really did seven <laughs> of eight episodes of peacock peacock's bupkis i i think are fresh and good storytelling and do the best work imaginable finding what's inter what's actually interesting about pete davidson and for a lot of people they're gonna be like i can't imagine there being anything interesting about pete davidson you're wrong the 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 episodes two through eight 
of Bupkis do a very persuasive job of of saying why he's a somewhat talented, somewhat interesting individual. The first episode is awful, and it somebody somewhere along the way had to have enough common sense to go, this is not a representative sample of what the TV show is. This is going to cause people to turn away from the TV show. It is coarse and entirely unfunny. And the second episode, as it exists, would have made a perfectly fine pilot, and you could have just started with the second episode. And I am confident that if they had started the Bupka season with episode two and just said, oh, it was always a seven episode uh, uh, season to begin with. First episode, what first episode? That it would be on a number of top 10 lists at this point, because I I think once it gets going, it's a damn good show. But I just need to tell people one more time, feel free to skip the first episode of Bupka's. Yeah, the first episode really leans into the kind of like worst assumptions you have about like Pete Davidson being this like really juvenile, like, you know, uh, like, oh, hoo, hoo, sex joke, whatever, like that kind of stuff. Um, but the rest of it, I didn't hate it as much as you did, but I, I agree it is it is it is not very interesting at all. Um, but then the rest of it ends up this like really interesting, thoughtful anthology that, that about about him, about his public persona, about how he feels about that. Uh, and I did find this season overall to be rewarding. And look at that. You did a great job ending on a positive note. I, people people say I'm a positive guy. Leslie, did you hate anything this year? Or are you only filled with love? The Dodgers getting knocked out of the playoffs again? <laughs> oh. But come, you on, guys come on. Come on. It's the end of year episodes. I haven't that. even mentioned Shohei Otani signing with the Dodgers. Come on. I, I am amazed that the first person to mention Shohei Otani on this podcast was Angie and not Leslie. So, yes. Uh, so, yes, as we change to positivity, the Dodgers have signed Shohei Otani. <laughs> Thank you so much for joining us for an extensive conversation about the best and also a little bit worst TV of the year, Angie. Always a pleasure. Thanks, Angie. Thank you for having me on and letting me ramble at length about things that I loved and hated. Terrific as usual. Thank you guys both for being so insightful on what worked and and what didn't this year. Number five. As usual, we wrap things up with the Critics' Corner. Since we are off next week for Christmas, there's a lot of new TV coming up in the next two weeks of the year. You've got the final episodes of The Crown, Carol and the End of the World on Netflix, Reacher returns to Amazon, you've got the series finale of Archer on FX, Percy Jackson and the Olympians arrives on Disney Plus and Hulu, then you've got the new season of Marvel's What If, and the final season of another Feinberg favorite, Letter Kenny on Hulu. Dan, what you got? So some of those haven't watched yet. Some of them I can't talk about. Letter Kenny, for example, has a uh, 1226 embargo day of premiere, but I believe that everyone's review is going to be it's Letter Kenny. Bye, Leonard Kenny. A little sad about that. Anyway, there are some some decent sized shows this week, and if I hadn't just spent the last hour and 20 minutes uh co-monologuing dialoguing is what it was it was dialoguing with angie about tv i could probably go long on some of these but i will try to be a little bit tight the last six episodes of the crown are now up the first four episodes were a disappointment for me i particularly thought the third and fourth episodes were probably the worst that the show has ever been the last six episodes do find some of the, the mojo back, uh, Peter Morgan and company. I like them significantly more than the first four. Part of the problem really and truly is that Peter Morgan probably should not have done, I would say, probably the last season at all. I think probably he should have found a point in the Charles Diana 
dissolving relationship in the fifth season and made that into the end. I, I just don't know that necessarily we needed this last season. A lot of the stuff is too recent to have any real perspective on. And while it's kind of cute to have the William and Kate love story, I don't know that it's necessary I, I don't know that there's the same kind of clear-headed perspective that Peter Morgan had in the first four or five seasons. And it it holds things back. But I thought a lot of the elements of the season were, were pretty good. I thought, for example, that the new actors playing Andrew and William, I thought they were both very good. I thought they transitioned in interesting ways and helped to make this into more than just the Lifetime movie version of, of Will and Kate's romance. I think that Meg Bellamy is great as Catherine Middleton, as Kate Middleton. Uh, you know, I think she's very attractive. I think she does a good job of conveying the magnetism that would attract a future king. And I thought the finale was a very solid look back and that Peter Morgan did a good job with the help of, of Stephen Taldry's direction of underlining a lot of the points that he wanted to make throughout the series about the nature of the crown and what the crown means beyond just what Queen Elizabeth meant. Because it's important to, to remember that, that if people have been watching the you know, this season and, and even last season going, wait, I thought this was Queen Elizabeth's story. Why why are we suddenly paying so much attention to Charles and Diana? No, it, it's, it's Queen Elizabeth's story, but it's also a story that has to acknowledge what the world looks like past Queen Elizabeth, what the crown looks like, what monarchy looks like, what it means. So you had to have all of those people. And I understand that. And, and I think they do a good job in the finale of explaining why we had to spend a lot of the time we spent in the past couple of seasons with, with these people. Imelda Staunton, when she gets to do things, and I think she gets to do things a lot in these last six episodes, she's really wonderful. And a lot of the first half of the season, a lot of last season, she was just a secondary player. And so glad to see her get a bit of a spotlight. I think it ends well. I'm glad that Peter Morgan didn't feel the need to go full Harry and Meghan. There was no way that was going to be good. I think it reaches a good concluding point, and I, I liked where it went. So not as good as really as the first four or five seasons, but a better ending than it would have been after the first four. The new season of Reacher, season two, I think it kind of cements it as basically being what it's trying to be, which is the TV series equivalent of Lee Child's Jack Reacher novels. Uh, so it is absolutely, totally disposable. It is also fast moving and fun and full of lots of brutal extra legal justice being meted out by a gigantic man on a bunch of half developed villains who you don't care about all you want to do is see them have the pulp beaten out of them and it absolutely does that successfully i don't think it's memorable i don't think the villains are memorable but that is partially the problem of this particular book the second season was based on bad luck and trouble which is not in any way my favorite reacher novel reacher novels tend to go to either hobo reacher novels where he arrives in a city and disasters happen or the other alternative is past affiliated reacher novels where his career as a military policeman comes back to haunt him and people from his past come back this is definitely in the second category it has a higher body count than the first season but to me the first season was more satisfyingly pulpy and efficient i also thought it had slightly more memorable villains this season robert patrick kind of on autopilot is basically the bad guy. And I thought that the supporting characters in the first season were probably better. But on a basic level, I think it is satisfying for many of the same ways. And I think it is satisfying on many of the same ways as the books. I will say, and I find this 
pleasantly ironic to say, given the amount of time I spent talking about different actors from Tom Cruise on who were too small to play Jack Reacher. I think someone needs to tell Alan Richson he doesn't need to be quite as big as he is because he is big in a I've been working out in the gym way, not in a I'm just a naturally gigantic slab of meat kind of way, which is to me what Jack Reacher is supposed to be. He's wandering the country. He he never stops into a Gold's gym, regardless of what city he goes to. That is not what he's supposed to look like. So when Jack Reacher takes off his shirt and he has a perfectly cut six pack and all of his muscle groups look like they've been carefully worked out and refined. That to me is not what Jack Reacher is supposed to look like. To me, Alan Richardson is now too big and he can't move as well as he probably should be. Not a huge deal. I think in general, he's fine. I just think ultimately, as we've learned consistently, Jack Reacher is not a character who can exist in the real world in a wholly believable way. But I liked it enough. It moves along decently, but there's very little to be said critically, which is why I didn't write a full review. Also premiering on Friday and a show that I liked actually significantly more than anything else we've talked about in this segment is Such Brave Girls on Hulu. It is uh, created by and stars Kat Sadler, young British actress who I don't know from anything, but but she is terrific. It co-stars her sister, Lizzie Davidson. They play sisters who live with their mother, and it's just a nightmare dysfunctional family. The title is semi-ironic. They are not hugely brave. They spend a lot of time talking about the trauma in their lives. And while they've absolutely had trauma, you know, abandoned father, uh, the main character played by Sadler, has obvious mental health issues, she's had suicide attempts and the like, but the narcissism and the commentary on the narcissism is a lot of what it is. The writing in Such Brave Girls is really, really tight, and it is it is a comedy that actually wants to be funny, and it is. It, it's got a lot of really cutting, really scathing dialogue uh, that is delivered wonderfully by Kat Sadler, by uh, Lizzie Davidson, by Louise Brealey. It gets better as it goes along also. It opens up the world in my review, I described a lot of what the dialogue is in the first three episodes as kind of taking a stand-up routine and assigning different lines of dialogue to different people and, and just that, which is not necessarily the most fluid form of writing, but sometimes it can be very funny. But it does become more televisual storytelling as it goes along. And I appreciate that. It's a six-episode show, and it made me laugh, and it made me laugh repeatedly. And if people watch it, it's full of really quotable, withering lines of dialogue that I think people will enjoy. And a quick look ahead to next week, because the embargo has lifted. I have not written my review, but this is what my review of Percy Jackson and the Olympians is going to say, is if all you are trying to do is be a better version of a story than the Christopher Columbus-directed movie of Percy Jackson, Percy Jackson and the Lightning Thief, particularly, then Percy Jackson and the Olympians succeeds completely at its goal. It is much, much better as an adaptation of uh, Rick Reardon's novels than the movie was. The movie was bad. The movie was a miscalculation on every level. The series is bent on giving audiences who love the books basically what they love from the books, as opposed to thinking it knew better and then not, which is what the movie did. It is much younger skewing. It is very much directed at young viewers, young readers, or people who still have that at heart. But in general, the young cast is good. Uh, uh, Walter Scobell 
who plays Percy Jackson is is solid. The actors who play Annabeth and Grover are solid. There are a lot of good performers of the more mature variety who pop up. Glenn Turman getting to play a centaur is fantastic. I always like Virginia Cull, who does a very good job as Percy's mother. Megan Mullally, Jason Manzoukas, lots of good supporting actors. What is holding it back for me? And it's this is not insignificant. God, this is a series that looks cheap and, and inexcusably so. Disney's money is boundless. They could have given more money to this project. And the special effects are somewhere between bad and invisible. Like a lot of what they had to do in writing this is to basically write around anything that required major set pieces or major special effects. And so if you want something that feels like the Percy Jackson books, this absolutely does. But if you're a reader who's like just looking forward to seeing what it looks like to finally have the Minotaur that attacks Percy and his mother and Grover brought to life, the answer is not impressively. So yeah, if you expect it to look like a cinematic blockbuster, it does not. But there wasn't already an adaptation of Percy Jackson that looked like a cinematic blockbuster, and it was bad. So this is better than that, even if it looks cheap as heck, and I really wish they'd give them more money to do this. But anyway, so as the quick recap goes, Reacher has settled into what it is. It is comparable to the books. It is disposable, brutal fun. Enjoy. The Crown, the last six episodes, are more enjoyable than the first four. They get to at least move past Diana a little bit. Good to have that. Percy Jackson and the Olympians, better than the movie. Still really cheap looking. And I enjoyed the scathing, miserable comedy of Such Brave Girls on Hulu very much. For more of Dan's weekly recommendations, including next week when we're off for the podcast, be sure to subscribe to The Hollywood Reporter's Now See This newsletter and bookmark THR.com slash TV dash reviews for more. That feels like a good place to wrap things up. Thank you, as always, for listening to TV's Top 5, The Hollywood Reporter's TV podcast. We'll be back December 29th with our 2024 preview. Be sure to subscribe on all of your various podcasting platforms. If you like us, rate us. If you really like us, write a little reviewy thing. They help spread the word of mouth. I promise they do. Or that's what I hear. I don't know. What do I know? Come say hi to us on all of the various social medias where she's at Snoodit with two O's. I'm at the fine print F-I-E-N. If you have questions for future mailbag segments, though, email us at TV's top five at THR.com. That is TV's top five, the numeral five at THR.com. Leslie, have a Merry Christmas, Happy Holidays, and until two weeks from now. Same to you. Merry Christmas and happy holidays to all of our friends of the five. Bye.